The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. July 17th edition of the PFTPM podcast, and I am home. It took 15 hours on Saturday for a 600-mile drive. Not that I was driving, do the math, what, 30 miles an hour? We were stopped for three hours, dead stopped, didn't move, put it in park. People were getting out of the, the car smoking cigarettes. I started to do the whole, at what point do I find a place to pee? Do I just go with a bottle in the car? Do I go up the hill and find a tree somewhere? Am I going to have shy bladder with all these cars behind me with people in them? As I water one of the flowers? Anyway, it didn't get to that point. But three hours. I watched a couple of episodes of the quarterback series on Netflix. I'll be talking about that coming up in the traffic jam. So it was productive. But man, it was a long day. And during the trip, I swore over and over again, I will never do this again. I will never take a car trip vacation again. If I go anywhere, I'm going to fly. And of course, by the time you get home, see, that's the thing about most, most, not all, but most travel situations resolve themselves within 24 hours. Now your plane's late. I remember for the Bills-Bengals playoff game, I was stuck in Detroit because I couldn't get a connection to Pittsburgh. And it was a misfire here and a misfire there. And one plane was out and then goes back and Finally, I got home. By the next day, everything was normal. This 15-hour marathon on Saturday, by Sunday, everything was normal, or at least as normal as the first day after you get home from the beach ever is. So it was a great trip. I was glad to do PFTPM, five out of five days. And one week from now, we are back with another season of PFT Live. Chris Sims will join me, and we'll be on top of everything happening in the National Football League. By next week, this will be old news. Right now, it's the biggest news in the NFL. DeAndre Hopkins choosing the Titans over the Patriots. DeAndre Hopkins no longer waiting around for someone else to offer more than what the Titans or the Patriots had put on the table. And by all appearances, this was just a simple case of the Titans offering more. Because maybe, just maybe, when you consider the full incentive package, maybe there's an opportunity for Hopkins to earn more in the New England offense with Bill O'Brien. Mac Jones at quarterback, then in Tennessee. But in Tennessee, you know, is he kind of the number one guy right through the door? He would have been in New England. Traylon Burks, year two. I don't know. And I also wonder, it's not like DeAndre Hopkins or his representatives are going to advertise this. I wonder if the Titans finally said, hey, man, we got to do this now. We're not going to be a stooge where we've got this offer on the table and you're going to wait around for somebody to get injured or some other team to decide that the guy they thought they were going to count upon to be receiver one, receiver two, receiver three isn't good enough. So they're going to come get you. 
we're not going to be your bargaining chip for a better spot. We need you to make a decision now or the offer is going to be off the table and we're going to move on with the guys we have. We want you there week one. You need to dispel this notion that you don't like the practice. You need to embrace training camp. You need to be there from day one. Look at what they're saying about you. I could see Mike Vrabel pushing his buttons to get him properly motivated to show up for the start of training camp and get it done to sign before then and not let it linger. So he gets $12 million in base salary or total compensation this year, up to $3 million in incentives. That would get him to fifteen. I suspect he really wanted to match Odell Beckham Jr.'s 15 plus up to three. And that may have been why he was waiting. But at some point, you just got to take what you can take. I remember when the talk of him being available first emerged when he was still with the Cardinals. And the sense was, hey, that 19 million plus that he's due to make this year, somebody's going to have to tear it up and pay him more. Well, nope, that isn't what happened. It got torn up by the Cardinals because he couldn't trade him because nobody wanted to take on that contract. And now he's getting less, $7 million less before we get to the incentives. And who knows what's going to happen with the incentives. And they, they have a formula for receptions, yards, and touchdowns. The maximum is a million, a million, a million, but he can make different levels. And he's going to have to have a big season to get the full $3 million. And really, if he gets the full $3 million, if he plays well enough to get the full $3 million, $15 million is a bargain for the Tennessee Titans. And then they have them under contract for next year. And I haven't seen the full breakdown yet, but my guess is that this is just a one-year deal with a one-year option held by the team. It's not a straight two-year deal with full guarantees. And if he doesn't get it done this year, the Titans are going to move on after one year. And there'll be some cap charge for next year from the signing bonus. We're still waiting for the full breakdown on the Hopkins deal. And as to the Patriots, I was on radio in Boston today, and we were talking about this, the fact that the Patriots didn't get him I wonder if Bill Belichick just really didn't want him because this was a different kind of courtship. Usually Belichick lurks quietly. He's interested in a guy and no one but the guy and his agent knows he's interested. And then he just gets the deal done or he doesn't. There isn't this public courtship where everyone knows for a period of weeks that the Patriots are interested. I just wonder whether or not deep down Bill Belichick didn't really care. Maybe placating Bill O'Brien a little bit. I don't know. And that O'Brien-Hopkins relationship, it was hardly warm and fuzzy when things ended, when Hopkins was traded by O'Brien to the Cardinals. So I never thought that one made sense. And I don't think Belichick was as serious about getting him as he's been serious about getting guys in the past because he flies under radar, he gets it done, and we don't even know he was trying to get the guy like he did with Stephon Gilmore, like he did with Cam Newton, how like he did with Randy Moss 16 years ago. Nobody knew Bill Belichick was considering a trade with the Raiders for Randy Moss. We were like, what the hell? It was one of the best moves he ever made. So we'll see if passing on DeAndre Hopkins was a good move for the Patriots and if getting him was a good move for the Titans. Next subject, and I mentioned this earlier, the quarterback series on Netflix. I think it's great. And I'm already thinking who will be the three for next year. Would it be Josh Allen or Joe Burrow? Like get an elite guy, get a middle of the pack guy, and then get kind of an experimental guy. You can't have three franchise quarterbacks. I like the blend. I like the Mahomes, superstar, Super Bowl champion, Kirk Cousins, one and out playoff appearance, Marcus Mariota bench during the season. Like, Josh Allen or Joe Burrow would be the top tier guy. The second tier guy would be 
Tannehill, maybe he'd be the third tier guy because he's got Will Levis breathing down his neck. That kind of tracks the whole Mariota vibe. I don't know that Tannehill's going to get benched this year if he's going to just disappear and it never is really fully explained the way it could be or should be. But you need those three. You need that. And, and maybe they'll go with a different formula. Maybe it'll be one of the young quarterbacks. Maybe they'll get a rookie to do it. Different look into preparation. Last year, there weren't a lot of attractive rookies. Kenny Pickett was the only first rounder. That would have made sense if he would have done it. This year, you got Bryce Young, CJ Stroud, Anthony Richardson. Wouldn't it be great if Anthony Richardson is one of them? Oh, I'd like that. I'll go. I think Josh Allen's more fascinating because of where the Bills are right now. I'd go Josh Allen, Anthony Richardson, and then Russell Wilson. That would be something. I don't know that Russell Wilson wants that, and I don't think Sean Payton would want it either. Dak Prescott, that would be interesting, and the Cowboys have done hard knocks three times, so they don't shy away from the cameras. But in addition to preseason hard knocks, in-season hard knocks, they got to figure out which three quarterbacks they're going to follow, and obviously it starts now. They're going to know now. Last year they kept it quiet because we didn't know that this was even a thing. We didn't find out until after it was done that it was a thing. I wonder if this year they'll tell us before the season who it's going to be. So, hey, Peyton Manning, executive producer, he gets his own name. When they show the executive producer, they have two pages of the graphics. Page one, just Peyton Manning. He's the guy running the show. He's the quarterback of quarterback. Peyton, give me Joe Burrow. No, give me Josh Allen. I'll get it straight one of these days. Give me Josh Allen. Give me Anthony Richardson. And then dealer's choice for the third one. It's up to you. Maybe Kirk Cousins again. Kirk Cousins to me was the most fascinating of the three. And I've written a couple of things about it. And it's funny to see some of the reaction on Twitter. And it reminds me why I'm glad we don't have comments anymore. Like, oh, I don't need to watch TV. Florio's going to tell me what was on the show. Well, not everybody's watching the show. Not everybody has Netflix. And even if you watch it, part of what we do is we find what's interesting and draw it out and highlight it. And the first thing I saw in the series that really caught my attention was the disclosure by Kirk Cousins that he had suffered some sort of a rib injury when he was hit by Deron Payne in the Week 10 game against the Washington Commanders. Because as we were all focused that week on whether or not Josh Allen would be able to play with the elbow injury he suffered that same day against the Jets, we didn't know Kirk Cousins was maybe an iffy proposition with his ribs, either a guy that may not be ready to go, although I never got the sense that he wouldn't be able to play. The question was, if he got banged around enough by the Bills' defense, would he reach a point where he couldn't continue? But he was getting treatment on his ribs. He was talking about how they're bruised underneath, and it's just a matter of time before the bruise comes to the front. He made it clear that he was injured, that he wasn't just in pain, that it was something that lingered beyond the game. And again, I don't care whether or not the NFL does or doesn't influence or enforce, excuse me, it's injury reports because we know it's a joke. But situations like this prove what a joke it is. And it highlights at a time when we're paying attention to the potential issues with gambling, the existence and the value of inside information. Because people knew what was going on with Kirk Cousins, possible rib injury. The team knew. Agent likely knew. Family knew. The people working on the quarterback series knew because he was talking about it. Nobody else did. And look, the easy response, well, he shouldn't be listed. He fully participated in practice all three days. Yeah, that's fine. But we see all the time 
guys listed as full participants in practice, but it still disclosed they have an injury. And I thought that the threshold for that was getting treatment. If you go to the training room for something, you're on the injury report. That's how I thought it always was. Cousins was presumably in the treatment room, training room, getting treatment on his ribs. The way I've always understood it should have been on the injury report. So that was the first one that caught my eye. The second thing that caught my eye, and, and this, I don't know why this is a hot take. When Tom Brady, the GOAT, pending whatever Patrick Mahomes does with the balance of his career, when Tom Brady says, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but basically I work all the time and I sacrifice my life for this sport. And if you want to compete with me, you better be willing to turn your life over to football. He says that, and we're like, damn, well, now we know why he has all those rings. Now, that singular obsession with football can become unhealthy, and it can throw your life out of balance. And he went through some stuff last year that may have resulted in whole or in part from his unhealthy obsession with football. But the reality is, there's always guys like that out there who are very talented and they're very obsessed because they're never satisfied. They want championship and another and another and another and another. And those are the guys you're competing with. So, and I'm not making a judgment here of Kirk Cousins, but I think it's significant that he decided to disclose and the Vikings decided to the extent they had any influence over this to allow him to disclose that he re religiously takes Tuesdays off when they're on a Sunday to Sunday schedule. Always takes Tuesday completely off. The impression he created is he does nothing. Doesn't open the iPad and look at film. Doesn't study the playbook, the game plan. And usually what happens is the game plan is devised on Tuesday, given to the quarterback maybe Tuesday night. I don't get the impression he does anything with any of that. He takes a full 24 hours off in season every week when they're on a Sunday to Sunday schedule. And again, that's fine. And if he's comfortable with it, if he thinks it's helping him be as competitive as he can be, if he thinks he needs that balance, you know, the law of diminishing returns and whatnot. But but as he acknowledged, most quarterbacks don't do that. And I know it's the player's day off. And this and I don't know if this is a generational thing or what. And I understand that people can be very protective of their free time. Got to be protective of my free time. My attitude is. If you want to be great at something, there's no substitute for spending the time on it and work and work and work and work and work. And yes, it could potentially be unhealthy. It could throw your life out of balance. Maybe you don't get enough sleep. Maybe you don't eat well enough. Maybe you have issues with personal relationships because you're so obsessed. But the problem is there's always going to be somebody that obsessed. There's always going to be somebody who's as good as you, who's working harder than you, and getting the absolute most and then some out of what they have so they're ready to go win in that 60-minute window when you've got three or four plays that make a difference in the game. So, again, Cousins said this is something he started doing eight years ago. I'll leave it for others to come to the conclusion as to whether or not his struggles in prime time or his inability to get beyond the first round of the playoffs other than 2019 when they won wildcard game in overtime before getting beat pretty handily by the 49ers – does that have anything to do with shutting it down? I just look, I, I don't I don't want to do the get off my lawn thing, but you got plenty of time off as a professional.
professional football player. I mean, I mean, real. I, I hate to, I hate to be like the people that I say, hey, listen, don't line up behind the owners, don't chastise the players, don't say they get paid too much money because they're worth everything they get and they should be getting more. Great quarterbacks should be getting more than what they're paid. But man, during football season, when you know that the guys you're competing with are putting in work on Tuesday, they're studying film, they're studying your uh, defense, they're studying their own film to identify their flaws. They're doing, you know, just whatever it takes to get better, a little bit better, a little bit better. You think about that, that Tom Brady mindset and that's what you're competing with. See, that's the thing. It's because I've seen some reaction like, oh, well, maybe one of these days we will applaud people who prioritize their life over their work. Well, maybe we will, but until they start giving out Lombardi trophies for it, it doesn't matter in the NFL. It's, a, it's an extension of the coaching mindset. Sleeping in your office, sleeping three hours, burning the candle at both ends and in the middle from really all year. You get that couple of weeks off, but you know the, the great coaches work and work and work because there's always something else that you can find time to do. It's not a matter of being inefficient. It's not a matter of delegating. There's always something else that you can find time to do. When you, especially when you get into the six days between games, there was a there was a show years ago called Six Days to Sunday. It focused on the Vikings during one of Dennis Green's seasons. But but that that title was just six. That's what it is. It's six days to Sunday, game, and then the next day you're six days to Sunday. And when you're taking one of those six days, and you've put a wall around it for twenty four hours. It just puts more pressure on you the rest of the time. If you're going to shut down for 24 hours of the available hours between Sunday and Monday or Monday and Sunday, you better be getting the most out of the rest of it. Because on that day that you're not doing anything, the quarterback you're playing this weekend probably is. Okay, so again, I I just, everyone's got to make their decision. But... But we saw how Brady was, and we saw the results. Peyton Manning. Run that one by Peyton Manning. Do you think Peyton Manning shut it down for 24 hours on a Tuesday? Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. One other thing from the quarterback series, and I still got another episode and a half to watch. Fourth and eight for the Vikings against the Giants in the wild card game. I've said it before. I've said it directly to Justin Jefferson. He gave me that kind of knowing laugh, like, yeah, <laughs> you, 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 you. 
I don't care that he was double teamed, Kirk. He got to throw it to him. That, it, Kirk explains that in that spot, he saw that Justin Jefferson was double teamed and he thought it was reckless to put the game in to that moment. He did it against the Bills and it worked out. Putting the season into it here. But what are your choices? What are your choices? You got Dexter Lawrence wreaking havoc up the middle. You got TJ Hawkinson, who, unless the guy covering him falls down, is not going to get the first down. Like, okay, I'm not going to throw it to Justin Jefferson because he's doubled. Well, what else can I do? Here comes Dexter Lawrence. Here's TJ Hawkinson running this little flare pass. Like, why the hell is he running that route anyway? Why isn't he going to the sticks? That, that, that astounds me on top of it. But watch the episode. And I need to go see the actual All-22 film to see what happened after it, it stopped playing on the quarterback show. They showed Justin Jefferson running down the right. He's got a corner to the outside. He's got a safety to the inside. But, man, it looks like the safety's just about to get caught flat-footed. You know, Justin Jefferson's running. And the safety's coming over. I don't know how that safety is going to pivot his body and, and take away the inside long pass. I think there was a window there for Kirk Cousins to fire that ball deep and let Justin Jefferson go try to get it. And if he doesn't, hey, you know what? You could do worse things than trust the greatest receiver in the game who has proven he catches anything and everything thrown his way. When you have the season riding on it, throw it up and let him go get it. So there's nothing that I heard or nothing that I saw that makes me feel any differently about how I felt from the moment I saw it. And I know that he had a guy in his face, but he had a window to fire the ball deep to Justin Jefferson, just like he did in that Bills game. He had a window to get rid of it, just like he did in the Commanders game when he injured his ribs. He had a window to get rid of it. And I just think that what he needs to do is get past the idea, because he explains this as it relates to the Commanders game. There are certain situations where he comes out of the huddle praying that Justin Jefferson is going to be single cover because he knows we got this. Kirk, you got it even if he's double cover. Throw it to him anyway. Throw it to him anyway. Trust him. Trust him to be the guy who springs up. Those other two guys have to execute. They know the season's on the line. They know the stakes. Trust the guy who's already proven that he will go get the ball no matter how many people are around him. So, anyway. You know, I get distracted while I'm doing this. I'm going to... I'm going <laughs> to... Pete's going to love this. Pete, you're producing this podcast today. I'm being distracted by text messages from Pete. Pete, don't send a text on the PFT Live show thread while I'm doing this podcast, please. It's a distraction. And then he's reacting to getting called out. <laughs> all right. Uh, I, I, it's fine. I don't care. Text all you want. I, I can deal with distractions. I think the whole distraction thing, especially in football, is, is overrated. Like I, I wrote this today with hard knocks. Oh, it's a distraction. Well, you know what? You know what a distraction is when you play football? It's lining up across from a guy whose assignment is to do the exact opposite of what you're trying to do. That's a distraction. So you deal with distractions all the time in football. There's always something that is trying to distract you from the thing that you're trying to do, whether it's directly or indirectly. But most of your time, it's pretty direct. It's that man who is about to hit you as you're getting ready to hit him, 
or that man who is trying to cover you as you try to run a route and get open or whatever it may be. You're always dealing with distraction when you play football. Okay. Um, one less distraction for the Jacksonville Jaguars is they put together a pretty damn good offense. And I think they're one of the teams that we need to be paying close attention to for 2023. And Evan Ingram, happy, signed, three-year contract. We have the full breakdown at PFT. Basically what he got is two years of the tag, guaranteed a little bit less, but when you throw in everything else, just a little bit more, about 540000 more over the next two years than he would have gotten under the tag if he earns his full in-season per-game roster bonuses and if he earns his 2024 off-season workout bonus. He'll be about 540000 ahead of where he would have been with two tags. He gets $24 million guaranteed at signing. So he's basically got about a million less than what he would have gotten under the next two tags. He would have got about 24.95 tagged twice. He gets 24 fully guaranteed now. And he he is, he loses the injury risk that goes with year-to-year tag because you assume you're going to be healthy enough and good enough this year that they're going to want to tag you at all next year. They basically committed to two tags, and then it's a Jaguars option for 2025, year three. So um, you know, a fair deal. Some will say it could have been better. It could have been worse. And it's better than doing the one-year franchise tender because you do have the security of the two years and you'll either get $15 million or so in year three or he'll be released and he'll be a free agent and go anywhere he wants. But they got him. They got Calvin Ridley, which I think will be their secret weapon. They've got Christian Kirk. They've got Travis Etienne in the backfield. They've got a very potent offense led by Trevor Lawrence, who's really coming into his own at the quarterback position, and in my mind is already one of the shortlist franchise quarterbacks. I'm recording this with about three hours and 10 minutes to go before the window closes on long-term deals for the remaining franchise tag players who have yet to do long-term deals. And Tony Pollard, Josh Jacobs, Saquon Barkley are the three running backs who haven't had their situation resolved. Well, Pollard isn't going to do a long-term deal. The Cowboys aren't going to want to take the $10.1 million franchise tender and do what would be necessary to get him to sign a long-term deal. Because from his perspective, it's simple. Hey, I got my 10-1, smartest move in the offseason. Was Tony Pollard accepting his franchise tender? Because I think it would have been removed by now by the Cowboys if he hadn't. I got my 10-1, and then after the season, I either become a free agent or you're going to give me a 20% raise about 12 million or so for next year under the tag, which would be great too. He, you want to tag me next year at 12 million? I'll sign that right away too. Please tag me next year and pay me 12 million at a time when the running back market is tanking. So the real question is, will Saquon Barkley and Josh Jacobs get long-term contracts? I am going to assume for the purposes of this segment that they don't. Maybe they will. I don't think there's any way Jacobs will. And where it stood over the weekend, there was a vibe that it's just not going to happen for the Giants and Saquon Barkley. I wrote something about how CAA, now involved in the negotiation, kind of wants to reset the clock and start over. And the Giants are like, no, 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 no. This thing's already been going. We're not going to start over just because there's a new agent involved. We've made our offers. You haven't accepted them. Now we have to see whether or not we can work something out right now. And if it isn't worked out today, remember this. One-year deal is all they can do with their current team. It can be more than 10.1. It can have a term in it like we won't tag you next year. 
but only a one-year deal after today for Jacobs, Barkley, and obviously Pollard's already accepted his one-year deal. The window opens again after the regular season concludes on negotiations for a long-term deal. And a point I made earlier, and I think I made this argument back when Le'Veon Bell had been franchise tagged the first time. What happens if Saquon Barkley, let's say the Giants make the playoffs again. What if Barkley says after the regular season ends and the window opens again on long-term negotiations, I'm not playing again this season until I have a long-term deal. The window's open for the negotiations. We can continue. We continue now. We get this done now. And I think the message would be sent ahead of that. And you could basically, as a practical matter, do the negotiations, just finalize the deal after the regular season ends. You could do that. But Barkley could be wise to say, I'm just not, I'm not playing in the playoff game without a long-term contract. And I think I may have pondered what the consequences would be for Le'Veon Bell back in 2017 when I thought that was a possibility for him. You've already made your full salary for the year. You get your playoff money. They could suspend you for conduct detrimental to the team, but you're going to become a free agent. Like, what, what, what can they really do to you if you say when the regular season ends – the window's open on a new contract. I'm not playing again unless you give me my long-term contract. I'm not doing it. What could the team do? And would the player even care? Player's taking a stand. You want me for the playoff game? You got to give me financial security. And think about it from the player's perspective. You've already fulfilled your commitment under the franchise tender. 17 games have come and gone. This is all playing for free. And we know the playoff shares for the highly paid guys pale in comparison to what they should be getting. You're going to risk your future earnings, your health. I mean, look, Tony Pollard suffered the broken ankle in the postseason game. You suffer a torn ACL in a playoff game. You're not going to get franchise tagged and no one's going to want you as a free agent. It dramatically limits your earning capacity. So there's reason to do it more than just taking advantage of the rule. There's a reason to say... I'm done carrying the risk. You carry the risk now. You give me the contract you refused to give me before, and let's get this thing done. Something to keep in mind. Now, I'm not trying to cause trouble here. I'm just saying if the Giants make the playoffs and Barkley ends up signing the franchise tender, he should at least think about saying to the Giants, I'm not playing in the playoff game unless and until I get my long-term contract. All right. Top 10 coaches. We're up to number five. 10, Doug Peterson, 9, Mike Vrabel, 8, Kyle Shanahan, 7, Sean McVay, 6, Sean Payton, 5, drumroll please, Seahawks coach Pete Carroll. And that's how this all came up. Somebody had left him off their top 10 list of coaches. I was on KJR in Seattle, and they asked me, well, is Pete Carroll a top 10 coach? I was like, yeah, I think he is. And that's what inspired me to do the list. But look at what Carroll has done with the Seahawks over the course of the past 12, 13 years. They built that Legion of Boom. They won a Super Bowl. They went back to another one. Could have slash should have won that one. And now they're in this second act where they're rebuilding that defense. And their offense is pretty damn good. They're a little more balanced maybe than they were a decade ago when they finally made their run 
they're a team that that could could threaten in the NFC. I mean, the Eagles and the 49ers are the two best teams. It doesn't take much to throw a team off. A couple of injuries, a couple of fluke losses. Maybe teams catch up to some of the things you did last year that worked so well. Maybe people have solutions for those quarterback sneaks. When you look at the next cut of teams in the NFC, Cowboys, Seahawks, Seahawks are in a position to, to be pretty damn good this year. And they've been pretty damn good every year with Pete Carroll. Think of the consistency. And, you know, I it's a simple approach, defense and run the ball. Defense and run the ball. And it led to frustrations because Russell Wilson wanted to be Patrick Mahomes. He wanted to be Josh Allen. He got his wish last year and it didn't work. Well, it may work this year with Sean Payton. He wanted to be the guy through whom the offense operated. He wanted to be the centerpiece, the focal point of the offense. And again, last year it didn't work. The Seahawks don't want that one person to be the centerpiece of anything. That's why it was kind of surprising to think they were considering quarterback at five, but I do think they would have taken Anthony Richardson if he had been there, that they're convinced he was going to be a generational type talent that they couldn't say no to, and they'd have him under contract for three or four years before they had to give him big money. But I just think that they've got a lot of things going in the right direction. They had the two first round picks this year. They both could turn out to be very good for the Seahawks. And it's just, there's something about Pete Carroll's way. And maybe what you need to do after every few years is clean out the locker room and start over. Maybe the message starts to get stale for some of the guys who have heard it five, six, seven, eight years. But that idea of competition, and he's got that boundless energy. And if you see him on the field before the game, like he's hopping around the pro, and then you see him away from the game, and he he looks older than every bit his age. He looks 20 years younger when he's out there before the game, and he looks a lot older when you see him away from the field moving around. So there's something about that, that atmosphere that gets the most out of him. He's got a natural enthusiasm. He's young at heart. And he's been a pretty damn good coach over the years. That's the main reason. There are many others, but interests of time prevent me from going into excessive detail. I think most out there will agree that he deserves a spot in the top 10. And when you get to this point, five, six, four, seven, who knows? But for everything he's done and what he's still doing and what I think he's going to do this year, Pete Carroll comes in at number five on the PFT list of top 10 coaches for 2023. Okay see some questions here and i was having an issue earlier because i had a typo in the tweet and it wasn't letting me pull up the responses let's see if it does now there's a lot of responses here i don't know if this has all of them uh but i'm just going to go with the ones that have shown up burger and austin why is there a deadline to get a long-term deal done on franchise tag players i addressed that last week i don't know it helps the teams because what it does is it takes away the ability of the player to get anything in exchange for utilizing his leverage. Hey, I'm going to hold out into training camp. Okay, go ahead. We can't give you a long-term deal. Hey, I'm going to skip week one of the regular season. Well, we can't do anything about it now. We can't give you a long-term deal. It makes it harder for the player to have a real incentive to exert his leverage because he can't get the thing that he wants. All you can get is more money on the long-term deal on the, no, excuse me, more money on the one-year deal or some commitment that next year they won't tag you again. So it just doesn't make sense. Will you make, this is from Tyler Herger. 
2023 season bingo card. Everyone always says they didn't have that on the bingo card, but no one actually makes the bingo card hashtag content. You know, speaking of content, and I don't know if we can find a way to use this on PFT Live, but Matt Casey turned me on to the crossovergrid.com where you've got categories that intersect, whether it's a player who played on the same two or two different teams, different awards, different things, different accomplishments, and you fill out this nine person grid with names, that is addictive. That's the bingo card I want. I actually did, he showed showed it to me yesterday and I did it, filled out the nine squares and I went back to see the next one and there wasn't a new one. So I just erased it and did it again with nine different players. It takes some thought. You really test your memory bank. It's This is one situation where it's good to be old. The sweet spot of old, where you can still remember stuff. You're old enough that there's a lot that you're remembering, but you're young enough that you still remember all the stuff that you're remembering. So the perfect game for a 58-year-old who's been a fan of the NFL for 50 years now and counting. Lee Dale, if you could be the GM of any team at the minute, but you have to have Sims as your head coach. Which which team would it be? First of all, I I don't want to be a GM. I have no desire to do it. I know Sims kind of does. He mentions it every once in a while. Um, I mean, look, I would want the best team. Great players. As a, as a coach told me recently, there's a chess match element to football only if you're not in a situation where one team is made up of pawns and the other team is all queens and rooks. So I would say the Chiefs, I would say that Sims could work with Mahomes and I could just kind of sit back and play the Brett Veach role and yeah, and you get a chance at getting a ring because the infrastructure is already in place. If you screw it all up, there's still a pretty damn good chance they're going to win the Super Bowl despite you screwing it up. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters. Both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. David Mitchell wanted me to review the Brett Favre versus Mississippi welfare situation. I thought I did. Did I not do that? I think I did. I'm pretty sure I did. Dilip Rao, how does one communicate to someone whose back has never gone out the sheer pain, immobility, and horror, as well as shame, that such an event confers on the sufferer? I've got an issue where my sacroiliac joint goes out of alignment on me once every 
five to 10 years. And during that two-week period where it's acting up, it is debilitating. It is frustrating. Everything you do hurts. Every way you move hurts. You can't get comfortable in bed. You think you find a comfortable position and you move a little bit and you're not comfortable. It really is horrendous. And it makes you feel instantly 30 years older. Mine acted up last year. The first time I went back to Connecticut during the regular season, Matt Casey had people over at his house on a Saturday night. And while we were there, we were talking about back issues, back problems. Somebody mentioned somebody had a back problem. And I said, yeah, I've got this thing. And, you know, I've been knock on wood. It hasn't bothered me in a long time. The next morning, I was sitting on a chair at the hotel doing some work, copy, paste, snarky comment. And I moved. I'm not going to try to simulate it because I don't want it to happen again. I moved a certain way. I just shifted in the chair. And I felt something grab. And I was done. And it like the rest of that day, it was kind of there. By Monday morning, it was horrible. And I walked through the airport with my my two bags, carry on, carry on, computer bag and my bag with my one day of clothes other than what I'm wearing. And I mean, it was, it wasn't real heavy, but it felt like I was carrying around like seven bowling balls. And LaGuardia now, good news, it's no longer a third world country. Bad news, you got to walk. So I'm walking and I'm like, I like, I'd have to stop and just kind of rest and regather myself and then pick up and walk some more. So that was, and I went to physical therapy four or five times during that window. And then it just finally goes away, but it's horrible while it happens. And there's all sorts of different back issues, but for me, it's that sacroiliac joint. And I found out cause I did when I got my physical, a body composition analysis where you get your fat percentage. I'm 19.1%, I think, which actually is pretty damn good. It sounds like a lot, but it's actually pretty good. But it's it's a series of x-rays, low, low dose x-rays that go top to bottom to figure out, you know, what percent is this, what percent is that, what percent is just pure bullshit. Uh, yeah. um, but my spine's, I got a little uh, scoliosis. My spine's a little, it's it would be this way. So that kind of gives me, like, I feel like sometimes I want to do this, like I'm just a little crooked this way and other ways. I'm a little crooked this way. And I think it, it does something with that SI joint, so. How did we even get off on that topic? I don't know. All right. Uh, Drew Porter, do you think Alvin Kamara will serve a suspension this year? Now that he has pleaded no contest to misdemeanor breach of the peace charges or something like that, but still at the core is an allegation of assault. The NFL has been monitoring the situation. The NFL moves forward with something, proposes a punishment. Judge Sue L. Robinson decides the case. The NFL has jurisdiction over the appeal. I think that they could get all this done before week one. And my guess, I, I mean, I, I hate to make a guess for something like this, but my guess is he's going to get a two-game suspension. That's my guess. So we'll see. I don't have any information. To base that on. The other thing they could do in theory, because we heard a lot about Deshaun Watson and the league discussing a potential settlement, they could work out a deal where it doesn't go to the formal process. But I think it's going to be, if I had to guess, and I am guessing, I'm choosing to guess, I don't have to, but I'll do it anyway, two games.
for Alvin Kamara. GB Soccer 6, do top NFL players see the Messi deal and get jealous and will try to push for it? I mean, Messi's getting like $50 million a year. I, I've been making the argument that the best players in the NFL, the most exciting players, the most eventful and impactful players, the quarterbacks, the franchise quarterbacks, the best of the best, and we know who they are. When the scheduling process is actually influenced by where those guys play and influenced by retirement and unretirement like it did last year, for the league when Tom Brady retired and then came back to the Buccaneers or Aaron Rodgers, where is he going to go? That affects the scheduling. That affects which games we're going to put in the big spots. There's a value to the sport that goes above and beyond the salary cap. It goes above and beyond the structure that's in place for teams to pay players. And look, we already see the NFL do it with the thing they call performance-based pay, where you have a guy who comes in, as a low-round draft pick and plays a lot. They've got a formula that gives him extra money, and sometimes he makes more money from that, that pot than what his salary would be. I just think that there should be a mechanism in place for all owners collectively, the league collectively, to set aside money that goes to the franchise quarterbacks, whether it's based on how many games they play in a given year, whether it's based on the ratings for those games, wouldn't that be something? But wouldn't that make sense? Isn't that a fair way to do it? Now I know you know Dak Prescott's going to get a disproportionate amount because he plays for the Cowboys, but I, I just feel like the value that the great quarterbacks have to the game requires them to get more money from the game, not from their team, but from the game, and they've created this beautifully perfect system from the team's perspective of a salary cap that keeps a Patrick Mahomes. I mean, really, what is if, if the commissioner is making 60, 65, 70 million a year, what's Patrick Mahomes worth to the game? What's his value? 80 million a year, 90 million a year, 100 million a year. So it'll never happen because the, the league has to want to do it. The union has to want to fight for it. And as long as all players are in the same bargaining unit. Now, if there was ever branches where you've got the quarterbacks in their own unit, the running backs in their own unit, we've argued in the past the running backs should have their own unit. Hell, the quarterback should have their own unit because they're subsidizing everybody else. That's what they're doing. The great quarterbacks of the NFL are subsidizing the rest of the league, the rest of their teammates, the rest of the sport, because people are tuning in to see the best of the best. And the best of the best aren't getting the money that they deserve. All right. Uh, somebody wants to know when PFT Live is coming back. At least the question isn't, why uh, are you no longer on Sky Sports? I really do think they're just messing with us now when they ask that question. PFT Live returns next Monday, 7 a.m. Eastern. I got to get, get up early again. Just when I get used to not getting up early, I got to get up early again. I'm still up. I'm still up at the same time every day. Let's see here. Juicy Fruit Zero. With the conversation you had about Justin Jefferson on Friday, and we were asked on Friday whether or not the Vikings would use Justin Jefferson as part of a trade package that would be utilized to get a Caleb Williams, get their franchise quarterback. And, you know, my first reaction is, eh, no, you don't want to do that. You got Justin Jefferson. You don't want to get rid of Justin Jefferson. But... 
franchise quarterback, a guy that's going to be your 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 main go-to straw that stirs the drink for 10, 15 years. There's some value there, I guess. I don't like it, but I understand it. So with that conversation, do you think there was a thought, even just a tiny one, the drafting of Jordan Addison as a lower replacement for J.J.? So if Jordan Addison shows anything, J.J. can be used to trade for a franchise quarterback they're wanting. And oh, by the way, Addison played with Caleb Williams at USC last year. So maybe that's what they're thinking about. I don't know. Ghost of PFT comment section. What do you think a successful season for Jordan Love and the Packers looks like? Do you think it's predominantly tied to wins, stats, or flashes of good, great? Is that good enough for Brian Gutekunst? I, I think that I think getting to the playoffs would be successful. And I think I, I'm not ready to take my hand off the checker, but I think they will. I'm sliding the checker there toward Packers make the playoffs, and I'm holding my finger on it until right before the start of the regular season when we make our official picks. But I think they're going to be good enough to get to the playoffs. And I think that that's a, it's a good pass fail for the first year. Now, if you come close to making it, maybe that's kind of pass. Maybe it's incomplete and we kick it to next year. But if they get to the playoffs this year, that's a successful season. Even in a watered-down division, in a watered-down conference, if the Packers can get to the playoffs, that's a successful first year for Jordan Love. All right, we're done. We'll do it again tomorrow. We got four more of these left before PFT Live returns next Monday. We'll have constant updates around the clock at profootballtalk.com. Thanks as always for some of your time. See you back here again on Tuesday. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.